first reading today is taken from the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah the prophet, chapter 56, beginning, beginning at verse 4. You can find it on page 743 in the church Bibles or on the screen. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is from the New Testament, Romans chapter 2. I'll be reading from verses 1 to 6, and then again 17 to 24. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For what, at, for what, sorry, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his judgment, righteous judgment, will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence Sorry, that's as far as we're going there. And then we read from 17 onwards to 24. So now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? 
as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is the word of the Lord. I'm now delighted to invite David up to join me. I'm thrilled that David is our speaker this morning. Um, David's a friend. We met at the uh, Archbishop's College of Evangelists, which was reformed a couple of years ago. Uh, I'd come to know David through his book, which is available at the back, and I would encourage you to, um, to do buy a copy at the back and take it and read it. Uh, David's speaking around the world at the moment, so we're, we're delighted that you could make time to come That's and be pleasure. with us at Emmanuel this Sunday. Let's pray for you thank as you, you begin. Father, we thank you for David. Thank you for your love for him and his love for you, Lord Jesus, and for your people. We pray that as he speaks to us this morning that you would give us soft hearts to hear from your word, that you would speak through him, that you would fill him with your love, your truth, your boldness, your compassion, your wisdom. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that each one of us might hear from you this morning. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Those passages of scripture might not really feel like they're that important. They might just ring kind of, oh, that's nice, a bit of scripture in the morning. But these texts are radical. These texts completely change the world. These texts reveal a God who has always been radically holy and yet radically inclusive of every human being. And I want us, in what I'm going to share this morning, to sit in that tension, because as human beings, we don't like tension. We want to resolve it. We want to get out of it. But that's not how the divine works. That's not how the triune God works. We are faced with mystery. And a mystery is not something you can't know. A mystery is something that's unsearchably deep. And as I was in prayer this morning, if you as a congregation, I was just seeking the Lord's face a little bit. I thought I had a, just a few little words for you as a congregation, and one of them was about one, actually what happened to me in my own story in a pub in the gay quarter of Sydney, which I'm going to share with you. But um, what happened within me was that I was salted with fire. So Jesus in the Gospels 9.49, Mark 9.49 says, everyone will be salted with fire. And I felt the Lord wanted to renew your holiness, renew, wake you up, with that saltiness of the gospel this morning. And that salt is so good because it just expunges out all the deception, all the wrong thinking, all the, wrong, the lack of compassion, the deadened heart, and revivifies us to God. So I felt like there was an invitation for the salting of fire um, to be renewed in the fire of God. And then I felt that there were other people in the congregation who'd gone through a really tough time and had actually been crushed uh, I was telling some of my dear friends from St. Aldate's here about my own personal crushing in the lockdown and various things that happened to me, and I just felt like God wanted to encourage you that out of the crushing comes new wine, and that there's a restoration of joy for you, that, it's, that there are crushings that we don't always understand, but they, in faith, lead us to new wine, to new joy, and I felt God was offering that to you this morning. So my story is, I come from Sydney, Australia, <laughs> and I worked out the key to the British 
the British mindset, how to befriend a Brit. It's basically when you go into the shop and you want something, you don't say, can I please have this? Oh, no, no, no. You talk about how lovely the weather is or how terrible the weather is. And then it's like, you could ask anything and it will be done. <laughs> and so I try to tell all my friends from outside this country, just talk about the weather first, okay? Um, and so how lovely is the weather today? <laughs> uh, how lovely is the beginning of spring? I just love this time, this crescent that we're in of new life. New life is springing up everywhere. The blossoms and the gorse is blooming. And I was like, I'm gonna write a poem called the gorse is blooming. <laughs> and I've been here for 10 years. You can tell it's really had an effect. Um, and my story starts in an agnostic atheist home uh, in Sydney, Australia, which, you know, is one of the gay capitals of the world. And at that time, I was wrestling with my sexuality. Uh, and also, I'm now a theologian in residence in San Francisco, so I go there a few months of the year. And so I've got another gay capital under my belt was giving me all the gay capitals and I'm about to also do some work in Hell's Kitchen in New York um, where actually for once I'm the majority as a gay man not the minority which is quite fun yeah I'm in this fiery evangelical revival revivalistic church called Church of the City with John Tyson so that's a bit of some of the ways in which God has placed me in these contexts and has given me a message which goes far beyond my own story but comes through my own story so I'm going to share that with you now So you, you've, you've seen my book. And one of the reasons I'm going to share my story is I think this is such a personal question. And as, as I say, we're, we're staring into a mystery here. You know, Paul says in Ephesians that marriage is a mystery. It reflects a mystery beyond itself. And so human sexuality and gender, the kind of makeup that God created for marriage and to reflect this future reality of resurrection when marriage will pass away, that was created to reflect a mystery. So it's no wonder that we are in a state where there are mysterious things happening, like people are transgender, people have same-sex desire that doesn't seem to change. And these, we shouldn't, as Christians, be like, oh, why is that? We should be like, of course. <laughs> you know, we live in a mysterious world. Not everything is easily explained. And yet we have this word that holds us in the truth and in holiness. And so C.S. Lewis, probably one of the greatest Christian apologists that's ever lived, said, I have no answers anymore, only the life I have lived. And I think when we stare at mystery, story is the one thing that can hold, can hold the weight of mystery. And I think that's why scripture is usually mainly story. So there's my book, but I have a little, oh, I'm gonna have a little personal hashtag Hashtag fabulous made glorious. And the reason I have this hashtag is because it really offends homophobic people. <laughs> um, and also, it, um, it also makes gay people feel a little bit more um, welcome. But actually, it's not really about that. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God created us fabulously in the beginning. He created us with an ornately beautiful human nature. And then that fell and was subject to decay and sin. And I think sometimes in the evangelical church, we just stop there. Everything's decayed, just decay and sin. We're all just sinners. And yes, there's truth to that. We are all just sinners. <laughs> we have nothing of righteousness we can bring to God. And yet, that hasn't erased our goodness. That we're still fabulous. Sin can't win. It's tried to win, 
but it can't win. And the reason God has allowed this is because he wants to not just keep us fabulous, he wants to make us glorious, hello. You know, so I say to some of my queer friends, guys, you're fabulous, but are you glorious? <laughs> like, have you met the glorious one? Like, RuPaul's Drag Race, you have nothing on the angels, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> like there is a greater beauty, there is a greater center for our identity in Jesus Christ. So hashtag fabulous made glorious. Now, as a young 14-year-old, I was confronted with the mystery of my sexuality. Why was I exclusively attracted to men? And why was that not changing? That's a really hard thing for any 14-year-old to face, I think. Um, and it was interesting because I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't raised in a Christian household. But I imbibed this idea that somehow this desire was different to straight desire, that it was misaligned with the created order, that I couldn't actually enter into a marriage. And I knew that even though I wasn't a Christian. And that caused me grief and a lot of pain. And so I thought, well, I better just reject rejection. I better absolutely affirm this because if I don't, it will kind of harm me. So I have to go with an extremely progressive view on these topics, because that's the way to free myself from an inner sense of self-rejection. And I'm gonna talk about that in a moment, but I really like this quote from Werner Heisenberg, who is the father of quantum physics. It's actually a paraphrase of what he said, but he says, the first gulp from the glass of natural sciences will make you an atheist, but at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. The first gulp of my wrestle with my human sexuality made me an atheist made me a French existentialist who read Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir and imagined having a gay partner and a poodle and an adopted orphan in Paris as my utopia. <laughs> Hasn't changed that much, but it's been slightly reinvented by God. Um, <laughs> and what did the church feel like to me? The church appeared to be more like Job's friends. Who's read Job here? It's a pretty hard thing to read, right? You have to have a lot of patience, a lot of, a lot of really bad theology in that book with all of Job's friends who start to try to explain away Job's suffering. And our society at the moment is a little bit like Job's friends. On progressive and conservative sides, it's like, well, you're gay, it's just a gift, get married, it's wonderful. Or, you're gay, it's really bad, try to change that, get rid of it. <laughs> explain it away, get out of the tension. And that's how the church feel, felt to me. It was this kind of club of Job's friends just trying to give me really bad answers to why this had happened. And what I love about God and the God that I end up, you know, coming into relationship with is that he isn't a friend of Job in that sense. He becomes Job. He becomes human and dies on the cross. His answer to human suffering and difficulty isn't to, you know, stay away far off and explain to you from like his condescension why you're suffering. It's actually to come and suffer with you as you. And to me, that is the most compelling answer to human suffering I have ever heard. I cannot find it in any other religion, in any other place. It's only in the gospel. And that's what Jesus did with me. But I couldn't see it because I was controlled by self-rejection. I was in a park when I was 15 with my Russian Orthodox boyfriend who wasn't actually Christian, but he'd come, he'd come from that background. And Anyway, he takes this cross out of his bag and says, David, I cannot fulfill the desires within you. No human being can fulfill the desire. I, I've tried, and it's, you know, 
you need something more. And so he takes this cross out of his bag and puts it in my hand, his baptismal cross from when he was a child, puts it in my hand and says, I want you to have this as a gift. And I went on a rant about how could you give me a symbol of our oppression as LGBTQI plus people? And started talking about Paul and what he says supposedly about women and you know, the typical anti-Christian rant. And in this moment, he kisses me to shut me up. And a man pulls up on a motorbike and throws a large stone against my back. And I remember thinking to myself, that cross is the cause of that homophobia, and I will dedicate my life to destroying Christianity. And you know what's fascinating? Is I think what God was doing in that moment was showing me, no, David, I know what it's like to be rejected because of something that you can't change. I got was rejected because I'm the son of God, and I don't condemn you. I came, I suffered alongside you, and I condemn those stones. I take those stones for you. But I couldn't see that because I was blinded by self-rejection. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite spiritual writers, he talks about the greatest enemy of the spiritual life is not success, popularity, or power. These are great temptations but it's the voice of self-rejection that is within us, that is the actual deepest effect, I think, of the fall. When our original parents fall, what happens? They hide from God and they think that they are rejected from God, but God runs after them. That's the good news, that even our sin could not stop the love of God that God actually hasn't rejected us, but in his son has embraced us to himself. And if, oh, we would just repent from that stupid voice of self-rejection, which is a lie from the pit of hell, then we would stop living in rebellion from God. I had too much pain. I was controlled by that voice. And I said, no, I need to become a gay activist and I need to destroy the church. And the church has often been homophobic and has often piled on, like the friends of Job, that condemnation and created a whole society of people who deeply believe they are rejected from the gospel and are now persecuting the church or saying, you have to change. And my mom became a Christian and I said, you have to choose between the delusion in your head and your real son standing right in front of you. Delusion, real son, easy decision. And she said, well, David, I don't have to make that choice. That's a false dilemma. By loving God, I love you more deeply. And I was like, whatever, easy for you, heterosexual. <laughs> but again, I was blinded from this truth of being the beloved, from the voice that was saying, trying to say to me, that called me the beloved. This was the core truth of my existence, that I was beloved in Jesus Christ. But again, I could not see it. I was suppressing it. I even went to a psychic when I was 15 years of age. And she told me in the middle of my tarot card reading that I was a child of the light and I was destined to be Jesus, the greatest mediator in the spiritual realms. And I had my token feminist friend who dyed her hair black from blonde as a statement against the patriarchy, waiting in a cafe, sipping a soy chai latte as I get back and explain, this woman is using this psychic thing as an undercover evangelist. And of course, the irony is I now work as an evangelist. Um, and I said, mark my words, I will never become a Christian. And I actually met up with her in Sydney recently, and she's like, look at you now, David. 
And that boyfriend in that park, he wrote to me last week, just before I preached, and he said in an ashram in Kashmir, he had a vision of Jesus and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and he's now a Christian. So I'm telling you, this love cannot be stopped. But do you believe it? Do you actually believe it at the deepest part of who you are? That is the real war of loves that I have, thanks to the Holy Spirit, I feel has been won in my life. And I pray it will be won in yours. And so there I find myself at the Christmas lunch table in 2008. And I love this quote, but God demonstrates his own love for us. Why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whilst I was still rejecting God and the offer of his love, constantly blinded by this rejection, he still died for me. I still had that cross in my hand. And I wore that cross to Mardi Gras as a Mardi Gras parade official. <laughs> I wore it because somewhere deep within me, I knew that that was the love I needed, but I couldn't admit that to myself. And every time a Christian came with some legalistic, moralistic message, it just worsened the problem. And it wasn't until I got to this Christmas lunch table and I was so filled with that guile and that anger, and my uncle was there, and he was a white, cisgender, heterosexual, Pentecostal lawyer, and I was ready to destroy my cultural enemy. I was woke before woke was woke. He had absolutely no intersectional capital. And so I said to him, you Christians think there's an absolute truth. I mean, you're deluded, there's no absolute truth. And you can't even communicate truth with language. I've, I've studied postmodern philosophy at university and I can tell you, like, let's just stop this right here. And you could have heard me and thought, what a like annoying guy, like why is he so bitter? But I actually cared about those questions, I actually wanted to know, and it's the people that are indifferent, not the people who respond with anger. <laughs> the people who respond with anger, they're actually searching. I was actually searching, and my uncle could see that because he had eyes in his heart that were open, and he was attuned to the Holy Spirit. And so he said to me, David Boy, thank you for that, but I just want to tell you, you know, you say there's no absolute truth, that's an absolute truth, and you just communicated that with language, so you just doubly contradicted yourself. It's like, well, I'm queer. I'm here, and I win. <laughs> and I stormed out of the room theatrically. And as I was leaving, my uncle had a prophetic vision that in three months' time, the Holy Spirit would come upon me, and I would become a Christian. And so she, he shared this prophetic word with my mom and my aunt. And three months later, I was in a pub in the gay quarter of Sydney. And it just took this one humble Christian woman who knew the answer to everything, <laughs> because she had actually had a father who'd been locked in jail because of crime, and she'd never had a father, and so she found the, our father in heaven, and that filled a place in her heart, and so she knew that in all the mystery and all the things we can't answer, there was actually one answer. And she had made a film that had got itself into the largest short film competition in the world. And so I asked her, how did you do this at the age of 19? And she said to me, well, David, do you want to know the real answer? I said, of course I do. I'm a student journalist. Like, come on. She said, well, it was God. Like, which one? Vishnu, Allah, you know, Jesus? And she's like, Jesus. I'm like, oh. 
great, you know, I'm just so happy that you found your truth. That's really great for you, but I'm gay and I've read Leviticus 18 and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Romans 1. Let's just move this really swiftly on, shall we? And she said, oh yeah, I don't really know what to think about that. I haven't even really, wow, that must be really hard for you. And then in the middle of this like moment, she starts to like charismatically manifest in front of me and she's like, oh, wow. And just as my uncle had seen in that vision, the Holy Spirit was coming down into this pub upon her <laughs> and she starts to get a revelation of God's love for me. Church, when's the last time you weren't just thinking about yourself? That the love of God had pushed you so deeply into his love for someone else. That is the compassionate intelligence of the Holy Spirit that was right at the heart of Jesus' character. He was constantly feeling what it was like for others and constantly having the revelation of God's love for those people and desperately trying to reach them and see their faith. And there she was in her weakness. She didn't have doctorates like I do or Tom does. <laughs> she was just like, I know the answer intuitively. And so she said, David, it's God. He's showing me his love for you. David, have you experienced the love of God? And this question just pierced through right to the depths beyond all of that pain and anguish. And in that moment, she started to pray for me. And she didn't pray with like a seeker-sensitive prayer. She prayed like, in the name of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, I come against every dark force. And I loved it. I was like, ooh, spicy. <laughs> like, I was also like, she might be a crazy fundamentalist and I might have to get out of here pretty soon <laughs> and have an awkward British conversation with her. Um, so she's, she's praying for me. And in this moment, I kind of go into this cocoon of time and everything slows and... I just feel this like hovering sensation on the top of my head. And it was like in the book of Genesis, like the spirit hovers over the waters. And I could just feel it like on the, just here. And then it became more and more intense. And it was like someone pouring oil over my head. And then it went all the way. It wasn't actually physical oil, but like it was like felt on my head and it went all the way down and then through my body. And then I heard this voice say, do you want me three times? And in my life, I had always been searching for this reciprocation. You know, in Genesis, it says we are created, Adam and Eve, kenegdo is the word to each other, which means opposite alike. We are looking for our opposite alike. The reality is not even Eve to Adam or Adam to Eve can be the ultimate kenegdo connection. God is our ultimate kenegdo connection. He is opposite us and yet completely like us. And he alone can fulfill that deeper desire than even sex or romance. And in that moment, I found the Connecto connection I had always been looking for. And I said, yes. And I saw like in 2 Corinthians 3, this veil over my heart and this pinprick of light came into the innermost part of my being and this breath entered me and I said to her, I'm breathing without breathing, what's happening to me? She said, it's the Holy Spirit, he loves you, hallelujah, you're being born again. I was like, I'm not a right-wing American Republican. No, <laughs> she's like, that's not what that means, it's just, you know, like you're being reconnected to God, spirit to spirit. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. 
And she kept praying for me. And as she's praying for me, I go again into this space where I can just feel like two forces are fighting over me. And I hear this voice say, will you accept my son Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I'm like, oh no, it's the Christian God. Like, and it was so hard. I cannot imagine, like I cannot give you what it was like to have the mind of an atheist gay activist, but the heart of a born again Christian. <laughs> And so in this moment, it was like I was being torn in two, like these two forces, and I just heard this voice say to me, I'll always be here. I will never force you. But you know I'm real. You know this is true. And this other voice was like slavery, like, get away from this fundamentalist. It was like The Guardian, basically. <laughs> um, newspaper, sorry, but they're pretty anti-Christian. And, um, you know, and like that whole voice of like kind of hyper-secular, whatever, Australian newspaper called Sydney Morning Herald, same thing, that I believed and I, I had, you know, put my identity within. And I was like, I don't like that voice and I don't like who I become when I believe that voice. And I said, yes, to my own shock and amazement. And I went home that night and my mum was waiting up and I was going to have to eat my words. So I walk into the house trying to, like, be undetected David! I'm like, oh no. She's an opera singer, so it's always dramatic, you know. And I, my dad's a Greek businessman, so that explains this. Um, and, and I walk in, it's like, hi, mom. She's like, David, is everything okay? Everything all right? And she's waiting for this prophetic word because it's three months, you know. It's like, well, I just, um, yeah, I. Mm. Uh, they came out, mm. <laughs> I became a Christian. Hallelujah. I knew he was the God of the impossible because, well, David, I made a covenant with him that, well, if he saved you, I know he's the God of the impossible because, David, you were impossible to save. And the prophecy is being fulfilled. And I was like, what? You knew about this? She's like, yeah, your uncle. Three, and it was exactly as my uncle had prophesied. What an amazing encounter. What an incredible way that our God reached me. And he can reach anybody. I was the person you would least expect to become a Christian. And that's precisely who God will save. Look at what happens with the people of Israel. That's what the Romans 2 passage is all about. God chooses the people that are not his people to become his people. God is going to choose LGBTQI plus people. And if that offends you, well, maybe you aren't really living in him. Maybe you don't really get the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're standing in the way. And I'm not saying that we should compromise scripture or compromise the holy standard of God, that sex is reserved for the covenant of marriage between men, male and female. I am a celibate gay Christian. But my gosh, how God loves me and hasn't obliterated that aspect of my life, but has actually been using it for his glory. That's what he's always done. He uses the rough edges. Look at the way he's created the natural world. You have a tree and it's kind of a little bit different, a little bit eccentric every time, yet the same form. He doesn't obliterate the cracks in our jar of clay. 
He glories in using our weakness to confound the wise and the prideful and to bring down those who see themselves as better because they're rich or heterosexual or whatever it might be. We can have absolutely no pride in ourselves. The only way is through the humility of the cross where we give our lives over to Jesus And that doesn't mean he gets rid of the weaknesses. It doesn't mean we have suddenly a resurrected body. Like, I believe in the new creation. I'm not going to be gay or straight, and nor are you, because marriage is going to pass away. It's actually not that important. It is, but it isn't. In the light of eternity, it's a bit of sacrifice for him. You know, I was with my Nigerian brother, and he is constantly with people who are having their heads chopped off for their faith in Nigeria. And people are arguing right now in the Church of England over a little bit of sex. Oh, come on, is he not worthy? Is he not worthy? Is that love? Have you not found a love worth dying for? The gospel is about finding a love worth dying for. But it's not about being erased in some sick program of half-baked psychiatry that really should not have been there. It's about a far deeper tension and transformation that I hope I've given you a tiny glimpse of through the paradigm and prism of my life and what God has gloriously done. So very quickly in this last five to ten minutes, I want us to look at some of the really scary passages on this topic. And I want to share with you, there is a tradition of young scholar evangelical men sitting in Oxford reading Romans and having life-changing revelations. One of them was Charles Whitfield, the other was John Wesley, and there's many others, actually, who had the same experience, and I had the same very strange experience, reading Romans and thinking, oh, I'm going to have to deal with these passages again. How do I... And I used to read this passage as a child, just thinking, you know, wrestling with my own sexuality, thinking I could never love the Bible. My own friend, N.T. Wright, he's a really good friend of mine, wrote the forward of the book. He said, oh, David, when I read your story, I realized the Bible isn't actually lovely for everybody. For me, it's always been a great thing. (laughs) But for you, that must have been rather torturous. And I was like, yes, Tom, can I have another cup of tea? (laughs) You know, and even some of the greatest theologians like him in the world, I feel so humbled to have had any part of helping him learn what it might be like for certain people that don't fit easily into the binary of male and female and, and marriage. And so here in this passage, Paul is writing to a context that's very fascinating. It's actually a lot like our own context. The world is being torn apart by arguments about Jesus Christ, particularly how Gentiles and Jews are both justified by faith and that we know that they no long, Gentiles no longer have to live under the law. They no longer have to live under the Old Testament law to be righteous. In fact, What Paul ends up saying here, and we'll get to that in a moment, is that the law can't make you righteous. It can teach you what sin is, but so what? It has no power to actually deal with that problem. But that a greater righteousness had come in Jesus Christ, which meant all people could be justified by faith, even people like me. Oh, if that offends you, good, let your flesh die. Every person can be justified by faith through Jesus Christ. So what is happening here in this passage is Paul is describing a Jewish theology of the law. And it is a wonderful theology. I affirm it 100%. 
but it has absolutely no power to save anybody. The description of how we fell from the created good in the beginning, that's great. We need to know that. And what was happening is that there were these Jewish voices, likely Jewish voices, legalists, some call them the imposters, and they were coming against Paul's gospel. And they were saying, no, the Gentiles, they have to live in the righteousness of the law. So justification plus a bit righteousness of the law. And these people were actually the enemies of the gospel, not the licentious pagans. They needed the gospel, but it was actually the people who were really quite religious, Jews, who were getting in the way of the gospel. Sometimes we as religious Christians have gotten in the way of the gospel. I have been told by Christians I couldn't possibly be saved because I still have a gay orientation. You don't get it then. You don't get that there's a greater righteousness through which Jesus can justify anybody and he doesn't obliterate their struggle. He manifests his glory in it. Guys, we have to get the gospel. We have to go that deep. Because if we don't, then we won't reach the world and we will get in the way. And so yes, it's true that sexual activity needs to be within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman because of the created order. And yes, it's true that we fell and we were given over to these sexual act actions which are not righteous, among many other things that we do that are not righteous. And it's true that one of the markers of this fall in creation, in us as humans, is the presence of all sorts of desires, including same-sex desires, which go against the created order. So, you see this here in Romans 1. I'm not going to read it because you all probably know it. Um, but right on the hinge of that passage, what does Paul do? His enemies are saying, here's the theology of the law, putting it over the Gentiles and saying, that, see, they have to have the law to be holy. They have to have the law to be justified. And he says to these people who are coming against his gospel, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. All the people who were saying the Gentiles need to live under the law, they were breaking the law all the time. I've sat with so many of my Jewish, Muslim, other religious folk, they're all not living out the standard that they believe in, and nor are you. You're not, you're breaking it all the time. But guess what? A greater righteousness has come, thank, praise God. And for me too, as a gay person, a greater righteousness has come, which has meant I can actually be made right with God. It doesn't take away the mystery of why this has been allowed, but it has given me an inclusion into the people of God that cannot be denied. And at the end of this, he says to these enemies of the gospel, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God's name has been blasphemed among the LGBTQI plus community because of legalist Christians that don't really get the gospel. It's heavy, but that's the reality. And yes, there's also the rebellion against God in the LGBTQI plus community. So how do we dismantle 
that problem. Well, Paul is trying to invite us into attention, and I'm going to land us here. Attention, which can be expressed this way, the law is not a license to condemn, but grace is not a license to sin. The law is not a license to condemn, but grace is not a license to sin. Yes, I've been justified by faith. Yes, I've been included in the covenant people of God. Yes, I am 100% signed, sealed, delivered, ready for the day of resurrection. Hallelujah. But that is not a license for me to sin, to go against God's created order, to, to have a gay relationship outside of that. So I live now celibately and have other friends who have a similar situation who are called to what's called a mixed orientation marriage about 20% of people like me. We are called Side B Christians. If you want to know more about that, you can find out about it in my book. But there is a global movement of people like me who are giving up their lives for Jesus. Their sexual orientation hasn't necessarily changed, but who are jumping into that tension. And you know what's horrible? is the people who should be supporting them are persecuting them. The people who are saying, great, you're not going to just live in sin. You're going to actually forsake that, but you're also justified. A amen. This is awesome. Let's jump into the tension together. They're like, those, those celibate gay Christians, I don't know. They use the word gay. I mean, seriously? Seriously? Is that your response to some of the most beautiful sacrifice we've ever seen of worship that someone would trust God when they had no choice in their sexual orientation and say, I'm going to be celibate for you, Lord? That's your response. They use the word gay. Oh, come on. Come on, church. See the beauty of grace in your midst of people who have received the gift of justification, but who have turned from sin. And I'm not going to lie that God doesn't zap you and take away everything the moment you're saved. He didn't do that to me. And actually hasn't really done that to many people I know. But he has graced that situation with the gift of celibacy or mixed orientation marriage. And so I'm going to land us here this, e this, this morning. And I'm going to probably go into things a little bit differently this evening if you want to come back for more. There was a category of people in the ancient world that were kind of disgusting, both to Gentiles and to Jews. And these people were called eunuchs. They couldn't procreate. Often their genitalia had been removed because of an act of an oppres oppression by an empire. They guarded harems in the courts. And they were, they were kind of like a sexual and gender minority. And so there was this same problem that we're having in the church today right, of not living in the tension of radical holiness and radical inclusion. The Jewish people in exile were really struggling with this and coming across a whole bunch of eunuchs and like, what do we do with these eunuchs? Because they can't really, in the law, go into the temple because they're not kind of clean, really, like, are they? So there was this ambiguity about what to do with eunuchs. And in the middle of Isaiah, right at the end where it's the kind of prophesying the future, the eschaton, this is what God says about this dilemma. He says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. I'm not talking about compromising the law. I, it still teaches us what sin is. But he says to these people, I will give them a name better than sons and daughters. A name better than having kids in a family. 
And what is that name? Do you know, Jesus was actually a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus died on a cross at the age of 33. And in Acts 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch, who's read that passage? Ethiopian eunuch, the father of the whole of the African continent. Now the place where most Christians live in the world. Like what a name that he, he, he was able to receive when he was baptized. He was reading Isaiah 53.8 where it describes the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And it says, who has heard of his generation? In other words, where are his kids? He doesn't have any. He doesn't have a family. He gave that up on the cross so that we could be saved. And so gender and sexual minorities like these eunuchs who give up their lives and say, I'm going to live. I'm not going to transgress the law, but I'm going to receive this gift of faith. God says, I will give you a name better than sons and daughters. (laughs) Yes, you lack that capacity to get married, but I'm going to give you something even better. And I believe that name is the name of Jesus Christ. And you see at the end of Scripture, in Revelation 14, there is this group of people who do not defile themselves with women and who remain virgins, and they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They are purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. These are celibate people that are not just some riffraff on the edge, some weird quirk of the church that we have to tolerate. These people are leading the army of God in heaven, and they are singing a song, a new song no one else can sing, and they have a name no one else has. This is Isaiah 56 being fulfilled, and this is happening in the church right now. And married people also have a similar vocation to to witness to this future that is coming where we will no longer be married but we will be in the marriage of the lamb and the bride of the church and Jesus Christ. And there will be this universal love that we will all share. And finally, all these difficulties will cease and we'll all be one in a new creation. I want you to imagine what that world would be like where every single human heart was unified in perfect love, the love that lays down its life for its friends. Jesus says the greatest love you can have is to lay down your life for your friends. It's not sex. It's actually not marriage. And the best marriages are those that have that friendship at the center. And so I just want to encourage you this morning, church, to live into this tension of radical inclusion of the whole world and radical holiness. And to reach out in your community to people you might think actually they can't belong here and say, maybe they can. Maybe there is a righteousness that is greater than the law that can reach them. And I'm just going to pray for us and invite Tom up um, to take us into a moment of prayer for that. But I'm just going to pray before that happens. Thank you for your patience. It's a lot of scripture to get through. So, but I want to show you what the Lord has revealed to me. And it's such a great word. So, Father God, I just thank you for this church. I thank you for the people here. Thank you that you you send us both challenge and encouragement. And, Lord, I pray that this message would be both a challenge and an encouragement, that you are the God of love that can reach anybody, and yet you ask us to repent where we are getting in the way of your grace. And, Lord, I pray that this church 
would be one where that tension is so deeply lived out between radical holiness and radical inclusion. Lord, I long to see this church filled with colorful fish, Lord, of all nations, all people groups, of people like me that felt rejected, who are, who are far off but are now brought in. Thank you, Lord, that we were all far off. We were all living in our own way, but you have brought us in by your grace. Lord, let us never be prideful. Let us always have the humility that comes from holiness, but seeks to include all. In Jesus' name, amen.